You're listening to an episode of the Elephant in the Room podcast brought to you by the Purpose Room in partnership with the India Justice Report. Each month, we will bring to you insights on the workings of the Indian justice system. We will also explore the notion of justice and what it means to Indians. My guests on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week are Justice Madan B. Lokur, a former judge of the Supreme Court of India, and Sugandha Mathur from CHRI. In this episode, we continue our conversation on prisons with a focus on decongesting Indian prisons in a post-COVID world. Thank you, Justice Lokur. Thank you, Sugandha. Thank you, Maya and Balay, for making time today evening for this important conversation. We are doing a series of conversations on the need for reform in the prison system in India. So thank you very much for being here today. We know that the second wave of the pandemic has resulted in a huge spike of positive cases in our overcrowded prisons in the country. And we know that they're understaffed, there's been a lack of medical staff in, in the prisons. Vaccinations have been an issue. I mean, the issues existed before also, but I think the pandemic exacerbated those issues. How would you assess the decongestion effort during COVID-19 on a scale of 1 to 10? And I'll start with Justice Lokur. Yes. Uh, you see, in my view, the process of decongestion has not been very successful either before COVID or during COVID. It's okay to say that, you know, 8,000 people were released. But out of those 8,000, how many of them actually came back? That is one. Number two, on what basis did you decide to reject the application for release of some of those people? So theoretically, you know, it's possible that 15,000 people could have been released. And even this 15,000 is not a particularly large number considering the inmates that we have. But I think the administration should have been far more proactive and should have taken steps to release as many of them as possible. The idea was that COVID should not strike other prisoners. Now, what is the point of just releasing a handful of people and say, well, it's not going to strike the others? Frankly, I don't think that makes too much of sense. So if you ask me on a scale of 1 to 10, I would just stay about maybe four out of ten. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Suganda? On a scale of one to ten, I mean, I would agree with Justice Lokur and I would probably say five. So there was clearly an effort that we could see in different states, if not in all states and union territories, but at least in some states, there was this coordinated effort where the judiciary, the prison department, the legal services institutions, everyone came together. I think for the first time, the coordinated effort that we keep talking about, this actually happened in few states. However, the effort was neither constant and not uniform. And because of that, as Justice Lokur was saying, that the impact could have been more, could have been better and, you know, it could have benefited more prisoners. But unfortunately, that did not happen. So, yes, I would say on a scale of 1 to 10, 5. So both of you agree that the results could have been better. And clearly the high-powered committees did try to release certain categories of prisoners. 
how could they have been better? There was also a trend where the high-powered committees did not release women and the elderly. The approach has largely been crime-centric and not health-centric. Why do you think this has been the case? And should more categories of prisoners have been included, for instance? So, Ganda, would you like to start in this one? Yes, definitely. There was a scope of releasing more categories of prisoners. The functioning of the high-powered committees was not uniform throughout the country. And the Supreme Court had left it to the discretion of the high-powered committees to determine the categories of cases for different classes of prisoners. And it had merely suggested one category that may be considered for release. And that category was those who have been convicted or are under trial for offences for which the maximum prescribed imprisonment is seven years or less. So about 26 states identified this category for release of under trials and 17 states undertook this category for release of convicts. However, there were seven states who did not determine any other category at all. Right. So there we clearly see where that effort could have been made. So overall, when we see the categories of prisoners identified for release by the HPCs range from 1 to 20. So in some states, they did make that effort. So, for example, in Punjab, Delhi, to some extent, Jammu and Kashmir and even West Bengal. So they undertook the decongestion exercise in a very systematic manner. And where you could actually see while going through the minutes of these HPC meetings is that there was a correlation between these categories being identified and whether that is actually helping in reducing the prison population or not. And you could see their thought process, you know, and how gradually they devised more categories of prisoners for release and slowly moved towards decongesting their prisons. And other HPCs, like I was saying, they took a very, very restrictive approach and they worked very mechanically with the bare minimum efforts required. And as regards women and elderly, this was very, very disappointing to note, you know, when CHRI conducted the rapid study. We found that only five HPCs actually undertook the cases of elderly prisoners. And similarly, there was only one HPC, that is Punjab, which categorized pregnant women for release. You know, they said that pregnant women should be released. That was the only HPC which talked about that. Very few, again, only three HPCs considered categories of prisoners who had comorbidities or who had some pre-existing condition. And primarily because this was a health crisis, that was something that the HPC should have looked at. But unfortunately, that did not happen. Yeah, you know, we already have these under trial review committees, right? The idea should have been, in my view, to strengthen these under trial review committees rather than set up another high-powered committee. These under trial review committees are at the level of the district. So you have the district judge, you have the superintendent of police, you have the district collector, so they know exactly what is happening on the ground. The high-powered committee may or may not know. Okay, So they're just going to lay down some kind of a policy. But what is actually happening, it's only the under-trial review committees which are aware of this. So I think the um, under-trial review committee should have been strengthened. And then they should have gone ahead. And if there's some kind of a doubt, all right, then refer the case to a high-powered committee. Otherwise... Hopefully, if nothing happens, what are they going to do? Are they going to have a higher high-powered committee? I mean, this will never end. 
you already have an established mechanism. Use that. Strengthen it. So the current institutional process is not working well and the high-powered committees are not the panacea for the problems faced in the Indian prison systems. We now know that. As Justice Lokur mentioned, the existing mechanisms, systems and processes need to be strengthened. That is likely to have better outcomes. During our conversations, we have also referred to the fact that Indian prisons are overcrowded. National average overcrowding has been around 110 to 220 percent for the last couple of years. And in the pandemic, in spite of various efforts at decongesting prisons from a health and safety point of view, we've still seen an increase in the numbers in prisons. Is this because there's not enough action or because incarceration continued in large numbers during this time? Justice Lokur? In my view, the arrest and detention of undertrial prisoners, persons, did not stop. And that is why the number increased. The point is that you are dealing with a health situation, a pandemic. The focus has to be on the health aspect, not on the crime. The crime is something that the courts will take care of. And the courts have taken care of, at least in the case of convicts. And to an extent, they have taken care of the under-trial prisoners by declining to give them bail. So the focus should have been on the fact that there is a health crisis and that should be addressed. Not that, oh, you know, you committed this kind of a crime, so therefore I'm not going to permit you to leave. What about pregnant women? Okay, as Suganda was saying, only one state did that. Did it prevent other states from doing it? I don't think so. Whatever the crime. So I think that focus was just not there. I mean, what Justice Lopal was mentioning, in most of the states, that was the issue, that there was lack of sensitization on the part of these stakeholders and why this decongestion excise, though it did sort of help in reducing the prison population for some time, but then again, it increased. So that clearly shows that there was that lack of focus and lack of sensitization among the stakeholders. And Regarding the point on whether arrests is one of the reasons, yes, definitely increasing arrests by police is one of the reasons for increase in prison population and the share of under trials. And actually data can help us to understand this point better because when we look at the data that's there in the crime India statistics, so a closer look at these total number of arrests under IPC, SLL, CRPC and preventive detention laws reveal that the number of arrests under IPC crimes increased by 42% and the number of arrests under state local laws offences increased by 14%. So this clearly shows that the arrests were increasing despite the Supreme Court directions to the police authorities and time and again. And another reason for increase in prison population, I believe, is because of the sporadic functioning of courts. You know, the courts were also shut down for some time. So reduced court operations have negatively impacted the provision of timely and fair hearings. So it has contributed to increased case backlogs now and has led to increased length of judicial and administrative proceedings. So unless that is addressed, this will result in prolonged detention of prisoners and thus increasing the prison population in the coming years. So the challenges facing the systems have increased. There's overcrowding in prisons. There is a global health crisis. 
and there is chronic shortage of staff and medical officers. I read that in some states, the numbers went down further during the pandemic, exacerbating the pressures on current staff. Why has there been reluctance in hiring more staff generally and medical staff specifically, considering that vacancies for medical staff have been at 30 to 40 percent across the country? As you're aware, there are a large number of vacancies. The number of uh, jail officials, I think 33% of the posts are lying vacant. The number of doctors is just not adequate. I mean, one doctor for 300. And you've had the pandemic and you had to divert doctors to hospitals, nursing homes and so on. So really, I think the whole thing has to be looked at in a global fashion, so to speak. Where you can't say that, well, crime is important. Or you can't say that health is less important. Or, you know, oh, we don't have people. So let these guys remain. Judges can't say that because the courts are not functioning, therefore the liberty of an individual should be taken away. That doesn't make sense. If you're not working, that doesn't mean that somebody has to remain in jail. If you're not working, you should say, all right, I'm not working. So I don't see the reason for keeping him in jail. So I think at the relevant time, there should have been a far greater debate on many of these issues, mm. which unfortunately did not happen. Well, in our experience, the problem largely lies at the small district prisons and the sub-jails, where there is no full-time medical officer available. And even if a visiting doctor from a local district hospital is visiting, he or she is only visiting, say, once a week, you know. And in this situation, during the pandemic, that's highly inadequate. And the reason that is often quoted to us is that there are a dearth of doctors even in the government hospitals. And therefore, it is difficult to depute doctors in prisons by the health department. And on a practical level, we do see that some prisons engage doctors on contractual basis also. So, for example, they would engage a retired government or an army doctor on that. So, when we look at the prison statistics and when we say that 30 to 40 percent are the vacancies in medical staff, it is not clear if the number of these contractual doctors are also included in the data or not. And if that is not included, then that means the ground situation is really very, very bad and challenging. I'd say that this is a public health emergency and countries have taken steps in order to address it by probably having special recruitments or asking the armed forces doctors, retired doctors to come back in in other countries. We have examples of that. I'll just pause over here. Maya had a follow-up question. No, I was wanting to follow up on Justice Loco's two or three points, actually. One is about the arrest and one is about the courts. See, the courts were not functioning. And as you say, there was no great effort to say that, oh my God, these people are all going to be inside. And so one must do something about it. It was sort of left to the high-level review committees. And they, according to some of the work that has been done in Maharashtra, they released convicts on parole, but hardly ever released under trials. And when they released under trials, in some states where bail had been granted, it took th- as much as three months to get all of the conditionalities there. And there was still the reluctance to give bail by the magistracy. 
You also have spoken about this many times when we have been in conversation. Now, this is a comorbidity that has existed for a long time. So, how are we going to repair it even in the future? You've got already nine lakh people more, and the under trial numbers have gone up from sixty-five, seventy percent to nearly eighty percent. Eighty percent of the population is now under trials, and there doesn't seem to be any study. And this, I wanted to also ask Suganda that what is the reason for the arrest? Is the reason for the arrest in the two years something to do with not obeying the epidemic protocols, being out on curfew time, or what? Unless we know these things, there's just no question of repair and no consequences flowing for keeping somebody in jail just because you don't want to give bail. So, Madan, really, my question to you is: How do we hold trial court judges and magistracy for not doing the duty that they should at remand and during bail? Yeah, there are two solutions. One, as Sukanda said, is to sensitize the magistrates and the judges. Why are you keeping people inside? I mean, is it absolutely necessary? Is there any evidence to show that this person is going to abscond? Is a flight risk? Is there any evidence to say that he's going to influence the witnesses? Now, what the prosecution does is they say, "Oh, you know, keep this fellow inside because he's going to influence the witnesses." So the magistrates don't look into this. One of the reasons could be pressure of work, but I'm not sure whether that's the correct answer to give on the part of the magistrates. So that is one aspect. The second aspect is, you know, the degrade system. I think has not functioned properly. What happens is that a person is produced, and the judge says, "All right, do you have a lawyer?" He says, "No, I don't have a lawyer." All right, you know, somebody from degrade. Okay, you represent him. You will represent him, but does he know what has happened? Does he know what the case is? Does he have a copy of the FIR? Now you can imagine what will happen to a person who belongs to one of the disadvantaged sections of society or who is otherwise very poor. If he asks or she asks that, listen, please give me a copy of the FIR, or the lawyer should ask, that person should ask, they'll say no, we won't give it. What do you do? So that's where the legal aid system has to be strengthened, and I'm afraid it's just the legal aid system is just going on. Okay, you. Produce somebody. You have a lawyer attached, and say, "Okay, you argue for whatever it is worth." And frankly, it is worth nothing because the lawyer does not know what are the facts of the case. The lawyer is not given an opportunity to discuss the case with his client. Maybe half an hour, maybe forty-five minutes. That doesn't happen. So that's why you have this problem. So I'm not aware whether most of these arrests were because of not following the lockdown protocol and guidelines. But I mean, we clearly know that the crime in India data clearly says that arrests under the IPC offences have increased by 42 percent. And during the lockdown, there have been nearly 150 reported instances of police employing physical force through beating, kicking, or lucky charge. You know, as well as inflicting verbal abuse and insults, 
to people. So, in, in, and including essential service providers on the ground for enforcing these lockdown conditions. So that goes on the functioning of the police and their accountability. But yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not aware if there were increased arrests for following the lockdown guidelines. That's absolutely fine. So we're never just trying to understand from Justice Lokur also that, yeah, what is to be done, but where can we get some consequences for the judge who doesn't do his job the lawyer who doesn't understand its client's case and the policeman who arrests willy-nilly. Mm. Because if at those levels of those first responders, there is no accountability and no consequences flow, no disadvantage to them. It's like this. So far as the judges are concerned, the high court mm. prepares their, their annual confidential report. So if a particular judge is just not playing the law or just randomly putting people inside, declining to give bail. Over a period of time, questions can be asked and the high court can be told that, listen, this guy is not following the law. And the high court can then take action. You see, this is a different kind of accountability. I mean, there has to be accountability, but this is a different kind of accountability. It's not that you fire the judge and say that, why didn't you do this or why did you do that? So you could have these accountability mechanisms not to punish a judge. That might be going a little too far. But at the same time, telling the judge that, listen, we know what's happening and you better shape up. Otherwise, it may have an impact on your uh, career. So accountability in some form will have to be brought in, not only with regard to the judges, but certainly with regard to the police. Now, in one of these gang rape cases where the girl died, what did the state do? They just transferred the police officer from one district to another district. Big deal, you know. <laughs> but that's not the answer. You have to take action against that person. So I think this accountability thing is something which we need to look at very, very seriously at some point of time and across the board, if I may say so. So moving on to the next question, we've already mentioned it a couple of times. Our prisons are overflowing. There is a staff shortage and so prison staff are stretched thin. And of course, they also fall ill if they get COVID. So the pressure on them has been mounting. How has this issue of staff shortages during this pandemic been handled or the lack of resources been handled by the administration? Justice Lokur, would you like to start? You see, the problem of vacancies has been there for a long time. It's not that it's only today or it's only during the COVID that a large number of posts were lying vacant. It has been there for a long time and this is something that was brought to our notice when I was in the Supreme Court. It may have been aggravated due to COVID. So if there were, say, you know, 30% vacancies because of COVID, that 30% went up to 33%, went up to 35%. But the problem about that 30% has still not been tackled. So there is no point in saying, oh, you know, COVID, that's why we could not recruit. But what was it that was happening prior to that? 
were any serious efforts made to recruit staff were any efforts made to sensitize the existing staff and tell them that listen this is your job so i think the whole prison reform issue has to be looked at in a sort of a global context within india and within the state we are worse off than we were 50 years ago so something has obviously gone wrong and what have we done to rectify this situation that needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed across the board by everybody who is concerned in the respect of uh, prison reforms i completely agree and here we are talking about the sanction posts these are already sanctioned by the government so then why these are not being filled up you know that's a big question and while we are waiting for these sanction posts to get filled up the required strength or the required staff strength is increasing day by day we are seeing that the prison populations are increasing so therefore we would need more staff so this problem like just toko said it's been there for long and they really need to take this recruitment drive seriously all the state governments and they need to uh, do that in a time bound manner and staff recruitment has to also coincide with their training facilities at times we've seen that at one go they've recruited say 1000 warders whereas in the state there is only the facility to train 200 warders at a time so how do you you know train 1000 warders then they are sent to different other training institutes the police training institute or other so i don't know how that then impacts their training and the kind of training that they should have got in a prison training institute and the kind of training that they would get in a police training institute so these recruitment drives have to coincide and have to be correlated with the training facilities in the state so during covid it was definitely a very very challenging time for the prison departments and particularly the prison officers and staff well in some states the state governments did quickly respond in providing them the basic necessities like masks gloves sanitizers pp kits etc but they had to follow these precautions very very diligently and we had some very horrifying stories and in many prisons where it was extremely tough where the staff you know a large number of staff members contracted the virus so in some states they do see some good practices so for example in punjab they followed a very strict policy of chasing the virus where they said that they tested some 85% of their staff and random sampling of prisoners was done and so they followed a very very strict and diligent pre level system of testing so before entering the temporary or the special prisons after completing of the 14 days of the quarantine period in these temporary prisons and then following 15 days quarantine in regular prisons so they were really following that you know trying to ensure that no person who is infected gets inside a prison whether it's a staff or it is a prisoner so pockets of good practice so you know we can see that recruitment is not happening of existing positions but did the state governments increase budgetary allocations to support measures to prevent the spread of covid-19 in prisons because i think budgets are very critical to taking any action for change for better well there were some good practices for example in tripura the hpc directed the state government to provide 
a sum of 1 lakh as impressed fund to meet the emergency requirement of COVID-19 special task force in each jail and remand homes. And they gave some about 4 lakh uh, rupees for every central prison uh, in Tripura. And similarly in Karnataka, we've seen that, you know, uh, every prison with a sanitation fund by the state government, you know, amount of rupees 2 lakhs was given for that. So some good practices here and there. Other than these urgent grants, there have also been examples where the state governments have now brought their focus to prisons, thankfully, and they have allocated budgets for construction of barracks, new barracks where there is space inside prisons, for even repair of the existing facilities in many states. They've seen it in Karnataka or such orders have been passed by the high courts. And they've also been following some Guidelines regarding construction of adequate number of toilets and bathrooms in prisons. So it, keeping in mind the health and hygiene aspect, I think the focus has come on because of the pandemic in some states and state governments have responded. But like you said, pockets of good practices here and there, we are not sure whether that is something uniformly done throughout the country. Yeah, so moving on from there. You know, Justice Lokur referred to this at the start about the under-trial review committee for decongestion that has been set up. The question is, have the under-trial review committees been set up in every district as was directed? And have they been working at a regular basis before COVID also and during COVID, of course, but before COVID also? Yes, you see, as far as I am aware, the trial review committees have not been set up in all the districts. And if they have been set up in all the districts, they are not necessarily functional in all the districts. So that's a matter of concern. You know, to say that, oh, I've complied with the order of the Supreme Court and I've set up an trial review committee, but no work has to be done. I mean, that's not fair either to the Supreme Court or to the persons who are in custody. So we need to look at all this. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that what happened during the pandemic was a complete disaster. Yes, there have been some good developments that have taken place and Subandha has pointed them out. But certainly a lot more could have been done. Sharing best practices, for example. For the high-powered committees or if the under-trial review committees were in position, being a little more liberal. These are things which I think should have been thought of, should have been discussed and appropriate action taken. Unfortunately, it's been sporadic. In some places, yes. In some places, no. In some places, money has been given. In some places, money has not been given. I mean, there has to be some consistency in this entire uh, issue. Can I ask a question also? Sure, Maya, please go ahead. Justice Lokur, you know, if you rule the world and you had to have five priority areas, that five things which, if done today or over the next 12 months, would reduce congestion in prisons and create an environment where they would remain uncongested. I mean, one could always build more prisons. We know the famous case of America where one-tenth of the population is in prisons. But having discovered that one-tenth of the population is in prison, they are doing many things to 
make sure that that does not continue. I'm not saying they're even succeeding, but what should we do that would make prisons be only occupied 100% or 95% and become really the places of rehabilitation and reform that our policy papers see? Yes. You see, first of all, I think we need a database. Who are the people who are in custody? Are they under trial prisoners or are they convicts? Now, so far as under trial prisoners are concerned, I think the situation will change every day. But with the use of technology, we can track the data. That this person entered prison on the 1st of January. This was the offense alleged to have been committed by him. And this is the period, if he's found guilty, that he will remain in custody. Why is that important? That is important because under the Criminal Procedure Code, if a person has undergone one half of the sentence, that person or the potential sentence, then that person has to be released. So there are so many people who have been there for many years. There may be some who have committed a murder, for example, and therefore it's a life sentence. I'm taking all those people out. But there are others who have committed lesser offenses and who have been there in custody for much longer than they should be. I can tell you that some work has been done with regard to the juvenile justice system in Delhi. And there are many children who are there. They should have been released, but they're not being released. Now, if that is happening in the juvenile justice system, I have no doubt that it is also happening in the adult system. So the database is... I think very, very important. Number one. Number two, that data has to be monitored on a day-to-day basis. There is no point in saying that, oh, you know, I've got the data, but I will see on 31st of January. No, you have to do it on a day-to-day basis. So I think let's start at the beginning to find out, it's okay, statistics, so many hundred thousand People are in jail. But why are they in jail? Should they have been released? Or should they continue to be in jail? And like you said, 76% of the people are under trial. That's a huge number. Why is that? So I think we need to get our act together. We need to introduce technology. And on the basis of that, at least you have some empirical evidence on the basis of which you can perhaps initiate reforms. I think this is the first step that should be taken. Justice Lokur, you have just spoken about what reforms need to take place to reduce decongestion at the institutional level. But I have a question here. What is the responsibility of the police in reducing the inflow of inmates into prisons? Or is it just the job for the courts? You see, the police have to be sure that they are arresting a person for an offence there are a few parameters for producing that person and asking for a demand. Number one, is that person a flight risk? Is that person likely to tamper with the evidence? Is that person likely to influence the witnesses? The police have to think about it. The prosecution has to think about it. And answer that if it is no, should that person continue to be in custody? 
today, what is happening is they just pick up a guy and say, all right, we are putting you inside. And the judges are also saying, okay, he's been brought before us. Let him remain for some time at least. So we've had situations where a person has not committed an offense or is accused of committing an offense which on the face of it is just a flight of fancy. And he or she is arrested and the court says you remain inside for two weeks. Why? One problem, of course, is that judges are overburdened. But I don't think that should be an excuse for taking away the liberty of a person. That is most important. You can't say that because I have too much of work, therefore you remain in jail. That can't be an answer. So there are plenty of solutions, but we need to make sure that we are able to put them in one place and advise the prosecution, advise the prison staff, advise the judiciary so that the problem does not persist. Sugandha, your thoughts? I would say that as regards police functioning, I think the amendments that were brought about in the CRPC where the section 41, A, B, C, D were included. They were included for some reasons, right? And that has to be implemented properly and must be monitored whether they are being implemented or not. And, you know, for example, if an individual is suspected of committing offense punishable up to seven years, the arresting officer must consider whether an arrest is necessary based on conditions stipulated in law. And if the officer makes the arrest or decides not to arrest, now the reasons have to be recorded in writing. Whether that's actually been done or not, the Supreme Court judgment in Arnesh Kumar versus State of Bihar, it, you know, it reinforced the conditions to be satisfied to determine, you know, at the time of first production, whether the detention of arrested person can be allowed. So it laid down very strict responsibilities for the police and for the magistrates, both, to ensure that no unnecessary, no arbitrary arrests take place. And even the magistrate is supposed to record reasons justifying the detention in the written order. And in fact, the judgment goes to say that any magistrate who authorizes detention without recording reasons shall be liable for departmental action by the appropriate high court. Now, whether that's actually happening I really don't think so. I mean, for the prison population to be under its suction capacity, it's definitely important to check this inflow of and the responsibility of the police in reducing uh, inflow does play an important role. So the police department should prioritize implementation of these provisions and they should maintain data on the implementation of Section 41 ABCD. And this should also be published on their websites regularly. I, I think in this entire process, somewhere this very important system of checks and balances is just lost. The high court doesn't say anything when the magistrate is at fault. The state department, you know, the state home department doesn't do anything if the police is at fault. So the checks and balance has to be revised. It has to come back into play. And it has to ensure that everyone is accountable for what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Can I just add? To yeah. You see, Anish Kumar judgment has to be followed. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But in 97-98, there was this case of DK Basu. Have we forgotten that? Is it that after every 20 years, we have to remind ourselves, oh, you know, this is what the law is. So in 2040, again, the Supreme Court says, this is what the law is. I mean, can't be like that. I think Sukanda is right. 
have to ensure that everybody knows what is to be done and how it is to be done. I think Sugandha spoke about checks and balances and ability, yeah. which is a huge ask, actually, considering where we are at this point in time. But we're the last question, and both of you have alluded to the courts and the judiciary and what it can do in being more proactive in reducing overcrowding. Any last thoughts? Yeah, I think the courts have to be proactive. What it means is that you can't say that, oh, you know, like one of the former chief justices of the country told somebody, oh, you'll be safe in jail. Can't have that kind of an attitude. So I think we need to look at this whole issue of overcrowding, hygiene. If there is overcrowding, hygiene is going to be a problem. So one problem leads to another. And so therefore, we should look at the whole thing passionately, scientifically, with data, and do something about it. Do you think that the training of judges, the training of policemen, particularly the lower ranks, simply disregards the constitutional imperatives that should guide them in their work? I can speak about the judicial education. Constitutional imperatives are discussed. But what is important is the impact, right? We've had judicial education in, since I think 2007, 2006 or something. What has been the impact? Has it actually improved the functioning of the judges? And in what manner has it improved it? And if it hasn't, it's like conducting an audit. You conduct an audit and say that, well, you know, this worked very well. Let's do this. Or this did not work very well. Why did it not work very well? It did not work very well for the following reasons. One, two, three, four. So let's try and rectify those defects. So I think this kind of an audit is absolutely necessary. I can tell you that, you know, when I was in charge of the Supreme Court Legal Services Committee, we did conduct an audit. And the facts were shocking. People had come to the Supreme Court Legal Services Committee to file a petition in the Supreme Court. And the matter was pending for 14, 15 years. Now, how do you justify that? I mean, the petition wasn't even filed. And when we looked at all the records and we rang up these people and said, that, listen, what is the position? They said, you know, 50% of them. They said, you know, we've already engaged a private lawyer. We don't need your services. That's not good. So this kind of an audit is absolutely important. <laughs> the controller and auditor general has given guidelines for conducting an audit, which are being used in the Andrega scheme. <clears throat> Why can't they be modified, you know, for other purposes? What's wrong with it? I mean, are we reluctant to question ourselves? Are we reluctant to find out what is wrong with us and rectify it? If that is so, you know, then things won't improve. But I think we have to be open-minded about this. Well, definitely courts need to be more proactive in reducing overcrowding. I mean, the first thing I would say is they need to prioritize cases of those in city who were there for longer periods. When we look at the prison statistics, trends that we see, so from the last 10 years, the proportion of under-trial prisoners confined for three to five years and above five years has almost doubled. That just shows the sluggish pace of our judicial system and this can't continue. So they need to prioritize cases 
or under trials who've been there for more than three years, five years. I mean, they have to somehow devise a mechanism to do that. And I don't know, maybe this is something that the under trial review committees could take on as one of their mandates to also look into why there is a delay in trial. I mean, it is a district level body where all the senior most officers of the district, you know, the district in session judge, the superintendent of police, the DLSA secretary, all of them are there and the district magistrate, then maybe this is something that could be added onto their mandate to see, you know, where this delay in trial, they must look into that. Second thing, I would say again that exercise these checks and balances at different stages of a criminal proceeding. And it's important for judges to ensure, magistrates to ensure a level playing field and ensure that all these fair trial standards are implemented at all stages of trial, whether the person is produced physically or through video conferencing. I mean, we see so many issues when a person is produced through video conferencing. The person has absolutely no clue. There's no orientation given to the person. Sometimes there are these technical glitches. The person is not able to hear the magistrate. The person is not able to communicate with the lawyer. You know, they don't know if they can actually speak with the magistrate during video conferencing. And I mean, the judiciary really needs to be proactive in all these aspects. I mean, after all, the person is sent to prison under judicial custody. It is the responsibility of that magistrate of that concerned trial court to ensure that, you know, he's safe and, you know, that he understands what's going on in his trial. He's able to communicate with his lawyers. So these are very, very important aspects that the judiciary, especially the lower judiciary, need to understand and take into account in their functioning. Thank you very much, Suganda. Maya, do you have any last thoughts? No, no, I don't have any last thoughts. I'm just stuck on the issue of nobody being accountable for all the misery and unhappiness that is caused by unjust process or lack of due process. And there are cultural, deep-seated cultural reasons for this. The elitism of our justice delivery systems. To my mind, the largest component is that everybody can do whatever they like without consequences. And I don't know how that is going to be cured, but if Madan wanted to say something about it or Suganda, it would be interesting to hear. Yep, I'm very much in favor of accountability. There has to be accountability of the prosecution, of the police, of the jail authorities, of the judges. Without accountability, you've had instances of persons being penalized for damaging public property. But you also have instances of the police damaging private property. Somebody's motorcycle was smashed and the policeman gets away with it. You say that CCTV cameras belong to the country. They don't belong to any person. So the police go and smash it. Not accountable. So I think accountability is really the key to all this. And that accountability, I think, can come through conducting an audit. I think all these stakeholders, all these departments, they need to do an honest assessment of their functioning. And why can't there be a research wing in all these departments at all the district levels to the point that Justice Lokul was mentioning? Collect data and first see for yourself where you lack and what you've been doing right and what you've been doing wrong. Why can't there be that process? And that will also help them to plan what they should be doing. 
as civil society organizations, as lawyers, we do these research on issues that we think are important. But why can't there be a systemic or a systemized system of research at all levels, whether it's judiciary, whether it's police, prosecution, probation, prisons, everywhere, to, to see where they've been able to meet the standards of law, where they've failed, where are the implementation gaps, where are the policy gaps, why can't they assess themselves? You know, we shouldn't be the ones telling them. They should be doing that self-assessment on their own. Why can't that happen? Just want to add uh, one word. A provision of the Information Technology Act was struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional. In spite of that, a few thousand people have been prosecuted under that provision. And nobody has been held accountable. That is the problem. This has been such a fascinating conversation on decongesting Indian prisons. The long and short of it is there is no one action or one person who can bring about the change. There are institutional changes that are required. And a collaboration between the entire justice system needs to happen to solve this huge issue. After listening to Justice Lokur and Sugandha, it is clear that the actions and frequent inactions of multiple stakeholders are contributing to the overcrowding. And while no means an easy task, with collaboration and accountability, it will perhaps be possible to make progress. So thank you very much, Justice Lokur, Sugandha, Maya and Valai for making time for this important conversation. We hope the learnings from this podcast will help create more awareness about the issues facing Indian prisons. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Elephant in the Room podcast brought to you by The Purpose Room in partnership with the India Justice Report. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Thank you.